Please open your Bibles to Judges chapter 14. And uh, if you haven't already picked up on this, um, with these stories about Samson, for the most part, we're, we're slowing down for taking smaller sections so we can really thoroughly uh, dive deeper into this particular series of stories. We've moved pretty slowly through the book thus far, but we're taking smaller sections with Samson specifically. And so we're going to be just looking at verses 5 through 9 of Judges chapter 14. And as we do here at ECPC, I'm going to invite you to stand God's word for us. Okay, put your full attention on this. Follow along uh, in your copy of the word as I read this for us. Judges 14, starting in verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Y'all can have a seat. I invite you to pray with me. You tell us a parable of soils, uh, and you describe your word being like seed, and clearly uh, what, what we glean from that story is that we, we should want, we should yearn and long to be the good soil, uh, but last I checked, soil doesn't decide for itself to be good soil. Uh, you, you would have to be the author of the good soil. And I imagine good soil would involve fertilization and, and tilling up. And so we're asking you to do that. We're asking you to supernaturally make us receptive to your word. And that subsequently, we would bear good fruit, the fruit of the spirit. That we would emerge from studying your word with the ambition of Jesus, which is an ambition of serving and not keeping a record of wrongs. And uh, it's the fruit of love and joy and patience and kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control because of the impact of your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In 2015, Carrie and I sensed that we were being called by God to adopt a child. And that was kind of weird for us because at the time we had four children and we thought that that's probably, you know, a full house for us. In fact, we named our fourth child Finn, which in French means the end. <laughs> so we thought for sure that that's it. But you know how it is with the spirit. Uh, he, he has his own agenda and he starts pressing certain truths and certain ideas and since a calling into your life. And so uh, we started doing some research and um, it, wasn't, it wasn't long before we were scanning profiles of 
children who needed homes, you know, on the internet. We would work with these adoption agencies and see profiles. And I'll say, when, when you even just dip your foot in the water of the, the need for, for homes for all these kids in the world who, who are orphans, it's overwhelming. It's very overwhelming. There are so many kids who need families, and it's daunting. And so um, we're scanning these profiles throughout the week, and uh, eventually uh, Carrie sees our son. And I, I, don't, I don't think she heard God's voice audibly, but there, there was something mystically confirming. There, there was this sense that, okay, this is him. This is the one we're supposed to adopt, and we felt called. So it was like a pregnancy test. You know, when you take a pregnancy test and you see the, the sign um, on the test that says, confirmed, you're pregnant. It kind of felt like that. And so um, having, having some confirmation, like an increased sense of call, that was scary. It's like looking out over the ocean, which is overwhelming, just the water itself. It's so huge, and you're so small by comparison. And uh, maybe you've had this happen in life, uh, a daunting call where it's like God's pointing out over the ocean and he says, now, now get in this little rowboat and, and row. Just, just trust me. Get in, in this little boat, this tiny boat, and then go out in this vast ocean and, and just row. And the ocean's big and there are all these creatures in the ocean and all these variables like inclement weather and giant waves, all these things you can't control. And God's saying, just go, trust me. And, and obviously the calling is way bigger than you. And there's so many things outside of your control. So in a nutshell, we, we knew we had been called and we also knew that this calling was way above our pay grade and it felt overwhelming. So one night we're wrestling through this sense of call and uh, we pray for a sign. We, we say, God, we want you to solidify and confirm for us that you want us to do this and that you, you will provide and you will be with us. And so we asked God to... Uh, really inexplicably provide the money for the application fee for, for adopting a child, which was like 1500 bucks. And we said, we're not, we're not going to reach out to anybody. We're just going to talk to you about this, God. And we're, we're specifically asking, if, if you're pleased to do this, uh, provide this money within the next 24 hours. So this was maybe 9 o'clock at night. So you know, we, weren't, we weren't putting God on a timetable. We were saying, if, if you are okay with this, we would love for you to provide this money within the next... 24 hours, just sort of magically, mysteriously. So the next day, around 3 o'clock, I get a call from my wife, uh, and she's like weeping, tears of joy, and she says, uh, I just got off the phone with the adoption agency and some family in Kentucky that we do not know. Uh, they just felt prompted by the Spirit to give money. They, they had seen uh, Winston's profile, and they, they thought, we're, we feel like we should give money to people, whoever the people are who's going to adopt this kid. And the lady working at the agency said, so um, it, it's kind of breaking the rules to even tell you this, but that, that happened. So there you go. And, and it just was such a confirmation. Um, if, if the pregnancy test wasn't giving us a, a confirmation before, it, it certainly was loud and clear now. And it was like God saying, I really, really want you to do this. And, and, Simultaneously, it really is overwhelming, and it's way above your pay grade, and it's, it's daunting. Well, something like a huge calling. I mean, he's going to be the judge of Israel. He's going to be the, de the deliverer of Israel against the oppressors, the Philistines, who have been oppressing Israel for decades and decades. So this is a huge calling. 
And, and God says, I want to bolster your faith, Samson. I, I want to remind you of my provision and my promises and, and my presence in the midst of this calling. I want to give you a sign. And God actually really likes to give signs. He, he really does. Maybe some of you are sitting here thinking, you know, God doesn't give me a whole lot of signs. But the Bible begs to differ. The Bible actually very uh, clearly says, no, God is giving you signs a lot. Maybe you're a bit obtuse. Maybe you're, you're not really tuned in to the signs. But God actually loves to give you signs confirming that he will provide and he will be present uh, and, he, and he will work it all out. So in Luke chapter 12, the gospel of Luke, Jesus says, did you know the birds are signs? So, so these, these creatures, these playful, energetic creatures flying around all over the city of Charlotte. These are signs, and God wants you to consider them. He wants you to contemplate these creatures, these birds, and he specifically wants you to meditate on the fact that these, these creatures do not farm, they don't build barns, they don't store up food. Here's what they do. They fly around, and they, they scan the, the ground for, for little twigs. And they see a twig, and they, they think to themselves intuitively, that's part of my house. God has provided so they take that twig up, you know, pick it up in their beak, and they fly it up into the branches of a tree, and they start constructing a nest. And then they fly around, and they see a worm. And they say, food. God has given me food so I can feed my little chicks in the nest. And, and they just, they, as the joy set before them, I got to believe they're having a great time flying around, even sort of flaunting the fact that we can do this and y'all can't do it. Um, and, and it's awesome. We get to delightedly depend on the maker for, for our livelihood. Uh, they just trust God will feed them. And, and then Jesus says, and how much more valuable are you than, than birds? Birds are great, but they're not the treasured heritage of God. That's y'all. So Jesus says, look at the birds. Consider the birds. The, those are signs to you that God will provide. God will come through and he will, he will make good on his promises. Uh, he goes on in that chapter to say, uh, consider the flowers. The, the, the lilies of the field, right? You look around at all these flowers, especially here in North Carolina, you can be driving down the interstate and in, in between the two lanes, there's just these beautiful wild flowers growing. In fact, I have this buddy who, who was from Detroit and he said, I came down to visit relatives in North Carolina once and I saw y'all have flowers growing in between the roads of the interstate and, and he moved down here because he thought that's a crazy, like it's not pretty in Detroit, but, but here just wild flowers so Jesus says, yeah, okay, so look at those and really meditate on the fact that, that these flowers don't fret about, you know, how are people going to see me cosmetically? How do I look? You know, how, keeping up appearances and what is my wardrobe and am I fashionable? They don't do that. And he says, even King Solomon, in, in all of his splendor and all of his kingly pomp, he can't compete with the beauty that God has bestowed upon these flowers. So, so look at those flowers and be reminded and relish the fact that God will provide for you. He loves you. How much more valuable are you, my church, my treasured people, than these, these flowers? Now, let's admit, perhaps these kinds of signs that Jesus talks about in Luke 12 don't seem to have as, uh, as much drama to them as this sign that, that Samson gets here. Uh, maybe it doesn't seem like there's much overlap between the intense sign that God sends to Samson um, and these, these signs of birds and flowers. But honestly, there is actually a decent amount of overlap. 
There really is. Because life in general, I think we can all admit, uh, life in general is pretty overwhelming. So, so you may not see a ton of overlap, but I would invite you to consider that perhaps there is some overlap between Samson's call and, and your life experience. So Samson's called to engage in warfare with the Philistines. Whether he's super in tune with that or not, that's his calling. And that's overwhelming. Well, your life is full of overwhelming things. Just, just living in this broken world, it can be very overwhelming. And that's not being overly dramatic to call attention to that. It's simply to say, it, it is truly hard sometimes. Just, just the emotional way I navigate and process the realities of my life. Honestly, it can be pretty overwhelming. It can feel daunting. When I really press into some of the relational dramas that I have to navigate, some of the rigorous relational stuff that God clearly puts emphasis on, we're, we're supposed to love each other. Well, that's hard. That's overwhelming. That's really confusing at times. And, and it can feel daunting. You know, the, the trauma I've been through, the, the uh, variables in life that I can't control practically and, and psychologically and spiritually, it's, it's overwhelming. And so these signs, birds, flowers, these are significant signs. And the essential point is the same. Whether it's this roaring lion that we're going to talk about now regarding Samson's story or whether it's God sending you birds and flowers to look at, the essential point is the same. God is showing us that he will provide. His, his power will prevail. His presence will come to bear in the life of weak, feeble people like us and like Samson. So let's zoom in on this scene from Samson's life. Look again at verse 5. Samson's walking along. It's, it's like his mom and dad are with him, it says, but they're not there when the lion thing happens, apparently, because they don't know it happened. Uh, so he's walking along, and... We're told a lion, not, not a little baby deer, a, a lion comes roaring at him. Okay, so pause. First of all, please feel the intensity of this. Do not read this as fiction. Uh, I remember one time uh, Carrie and I were out west hiking with some friends. We were hiking up to this beautiful glacier lake in the Rocky Mountains. And, it, you know, lots of switchbacks. We're in a wooded area. It's a narrow trail. So our heads are down because we're tired. And we're trying, you know, to step over rocks and roots without tripping. And we come around one of these switchbacks, and probably seven feet away, there is an elk, a vegetarian creature, not, <laughs> not a lion. Elk don't stalk humans. And the elk's just chilling. He's just right over here where the drums are, and he's just eating his breakfast, right? just chowing down on a bush. But we didn't see him. So we come around, and then we notice him, and we flip out. All four of us. I mean, like our adrenaline is pumping and it is intense. That's an elk, a peaceful vegetarian elk. Th this is a lion. Okay, so when you read scripture and God tells you stuff like this, you're supposed to feel the intensity of this. If, if you would panic coming across an elk without realizing that it was there, this would be infinitely more intense. Let, let me give you another example. Um, a few months ago, I was blowing leaves at my house, and so the sound of the leaf blower is loud, drowns out other noises, and then I had my AirPods in to listen to an audiobook. And uh, Courtney Schnee walks through our neighborhood a lot. We all know Courtney. She, she's friendly. She wants to just say hi. So I'm blowing the leaves. I've got tunnel vision. And she just very truly tries to sensitively, you know, gingerly kind of just enter my field of vision. And my reaction is something like, ah! 
And I, I was terrified. Uh, Courtney's not a vegetarian, but she's not a cannibal. She's not, she's not trying to eat me. You know, we're dealing with a lion situation here. Okay, we're dealing with a roaring lion, and it's it's charging at Samson. And uh, so, what's going on? Okay, number one, this is a massive wake-up call. Okay, I mean, just you'd be very alert if a lion came charging at you. And for Samson, it's it's kind of a two-sided coin wake-up call. On on the one hand, um, God. Is, is kind of trying to pull Samson out of this stupor that he's clearly in. I mean, even in this passage, the, the, the focus for Samson is on verse is, is seen in verse 7. He's just thinking about how this girl in Timna is right in his eyes. Like, he's been given a call to wage war with the Philistines, and thus far, he's oblivious to that call. At best, he's blasé about that call. You know, maybe his parents have told him something about what the angel of the Lord uh, revealed to them, but he just doesn't care. He, he's not trying to participate in God's war against the oppressors. He's marrying into the, the clan of the oppressors. He's just not taking this seriously. And so on, on the one hand, God's just simply saying, wake up, Samson. Samson, as you're heading down to make marriage arrangements, wake up. Lion. Like, this is a pretty clear wake-up call. Second, not a, it's not a little deer. It, the, the lion is a picture of Forces far more powerful than you are attacking you and my people, Samson. And so I'm waking you up to the reality that if you're going to be my conduit for dealing with these forces, let's be really clear, it's not, it's not going to be, redemption's not going to be based on your sufficiency. You need, to, you need to wake up to the reality that power doesn't just intrinsically come from you. And we need to maybe really clarify that with the story of Samson because, you know, we read these stories of Samson. We've heard these stories perhaps as kids and we think, you know, Samson's he's just a really strong, powerful guy. Intrinsically, no, he's not. No, he's not. Uh, like for all of us, sufficiency and strength and power does not naturally come from any of us. It, 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 has, to, it has to come from outside of us. God would have to take insufficient, feeble creatures and, and use them as, as vessels and conduits of his power. And that's, and that's what God's trying to wake Samson up to. So that's really emphasized in this passage. Some, some outside force is going to have to take over in Samson's life if he is going to fulfill his calling to deliver Israel from Philistine oppression. And that's what you read in verse 6. The spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson. The Spirit of God takes over in his life. And that's how Samson is able to rip a lion in half. And so God's saying, look, this miraculous supernatural thing is going to happen. I'm going to take even you, Samson. You, you're a dim-witted, obtuse, self-absorbed man. But in accordance with my grace, I'm choosing to use you as my vessel uh, to, to save and redeem the people of Israel from Philistine oppression. That's what I'm showing you here. In this imagery of, of the spirit rushing, just rushing power. So a couple weeks ago, my oldest son and I, Henry, we were out in Colorado, and we were in Buena Vista. The Arkansas River runs through Colorado. And so in the evenings, or that town, and, and so in the evenings, we'd walk down by the river. It's this really nice spot to walk and just see the river, see people playing in the river. And 
there's this spot, maybe there's a few of these spots, but we kept coming across this one particular spot where this, uh, this sort of rock formation was in the water and the, the, the water just rushes over this rock formation and it creates this current that these surfers can surf on. It just creates this like wave kind of thing and they can surf in there. So we'd, we'd sit there mesmerized watching these, these talented surfers do this and it was, it was mesmerizing. Uh, but then they'd, they'd fall off their boards or they'd get tired and you know, jump into the water. And it was surreal how fast the current, the rushing water could push them downriver. Like the moment they, they came off their surfboards, I mean, they'd be 100 yards down the river in the blink of an eye. You know, and they'd have to swim like crazy to get over to the side and, and get to the bank, and then they'd walk up and they'd do it all over again. Now, had, had Henry and I said to one of those people, hey, man, you really booked it downriver. When you, when you jumped off your board, I mean, you swam faster than Michael Phelps could ever dare dream to, to swim. I mean, like, you were so fast. You were such a strong, fast swimmer. They'd say, it, did you not see? It wasn't me. I did not swim fast downriver. The current, the rushing water pushed me downriver. That's how this worked. Something from outside me worked on my life to push me down the river. And people still testify to this. People still talk about this. They'll say things like, there's this thing that happened in my life. And I'm here to tell you, it wasn't me. It was not me. Um, the Apostle Paul comes to mind. Uh, the Apostle Paul, you know what he was, was ambitious to do when the, the, the powerful calling of God came upon, upon his life? Paul was trying to murder Christians. That's what it says in the book of Acts. Paul was breathing murderous threats against the church, the wife of Jesus. He was trying to destroy the body and bride of Christ. That was his ambition. And he was a Jewish Pharisee. And so his, his ambition was accented with this insistence that I will never, ever go near the Gentiles. I would never, ever eat with them or associate with them. You remember what happens? Jesus prevails on Paul. It's like he invades Paul's life and hijacks Paul's life. And he says, I'm going to take you, the greatest opponent of my church, and I'm going to establish you as the most prolific missionary to the Gentiles and church planter in the first century. That's what I'm going to do. You, you, you see, God does this. He, he works on people in, in some of the most shocking and supernatural kinds of ways. Romans 7 says, look, nothing good dwells in you. Intrinsically, nothing good dwells in you. You're, you're conceived in sin. You're, you're dead in your sins. You're corrupt. You're hostile toward God. But then something amazingly gracious happens. God intervenes. God prevails on us, and he, he comes in, and he takes over. And again, even nowadays, people testify to this. Uh, some of you have probably read Rosaria Butterfield's memoir, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. You know, Rosaria Butterfield, she was an English professor at Syracuse University, and she, she's very clear on this. She said, you know, if it were up to me, um, I would take all the Christian children that I had the opportunity to teach at Syracuse, and I would try to deconstruct their faith and deconvert them from Christianity, and I try to, be, I would try to indoctrinate them to become, you know, part of the LGBT gay pride movement. She was a super proud, outspoken, militant lesbian, 
And she had access to all these covenant kids, right? All these Christian kids coming into her classrooms. And she said, my goal was, was not just to teach my view, but my goal was to completely dominate any Christian worldview with my worldview and make people do what I thought was good. And then God got involved in Rosaria's life. This, this kind of old fuddy-duddy pastor and his wife invited Rosario for, Rosaria over for, for dinner, and they began this relationship with her, and they began to just ask questions and talk and listen, and the work of the Spirit prevailed. And Rosaria, repentance unto life. And Rosaria would be the first to tell you, I didn't decide that for myself. God, the Holy Spirit came in and he took over. And, and my eyes were open and, and I saw the truth, the goodness and beauty of Jesus. And, and that's the only thing that can account for why I repented and believed in Jesus. Uh, some of you know the name Corey Ten Boom. You know that story. It gives me goosebumps to, to even just remotely imagine this story. You know, she had been in a concentration camp during World War II. And after the war, uh, long story short, she crosses paths with one of the guards of the concentration camp, one of these Nazi guards who, who really contributed to the death of, of some of her relatives and her friends. And she says, I didn't want to forgive him. I know the Bible says, love your enemies, forgive your enemies. And Corey Tim Boom says, I didn't want to do it. I did not want to do it. But something more powerful than me provoked me and compelled me to interact with this former enemy and, and shake his hand and with tears in my eyes say, I forgive you. Because the love of God is, is bigger than what's right in my eyes. It's, it's bigger than what I might prefer. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. This guy who formerly used to murder the church, he says, now I work harder than anybody else to plant churches and to tell people about Jesus. But he says, but it's not me. I work harder than anybody else. And I'm not boasting. I'm telling you, it's the grace of God in me. That's what is provoking me and compelling me to go on all these missionary journeys and to lay down my life to tell people about Jesus. So this lion incident with Samson, it's God's sign to Samson that, number one, Samson is up against powers far more intense and, and far bigger than himself. There's, there's no human explanation as to how Samson can just rip a lion into pieces. That is clearly a supernatural of the spirit event. So God is saying that's, that's a sign, loud and clear. Furthermore, secondly, God's power and God's preference to use a weak vessel, even this dim-witted, self-absorbed guy, Samson, God's preference to use weak vessels to, to show and display his prevailing power, that's what we're being shown here. That's what this sign is. And here's the thing. If Samson actually slows down and he considers this sign, if he contemplates it and he sees it and he relishes it, he will be in awe. He, he will invariably be in a posture of worship because he'll be stewarding the mystery of this, this anomaly, this paradoxical beauty of God's preference to work like this. And he will, he will experience an intense craving for more of the things of God. So that leads to the second point. What do these signs do to us? Well, they make us hungry. That's what signs are supposed to do. They're supposed to cultivate this, this craving for God and the kingdom of God. And the agenda of God. So in verse 8, 
We see some days later, Samson is traveling back to Timnah, and he, he passes this place where this, this lion attack happened. And he sees the lion carcass, flies inhabiting the carcass. What does he see? He sees there's a community of uh, industrious, creative, visionary bees in this carcass. And they're creating something sweet and beautiful and wonderful honey. In short, this is a continuation of this signs motif, and it's a development because there's this hunger component to this sign. Uh, in other words, Samson can't not crave what he sees here. And, and God's making that really clear. Uh, you would expect to find, as I mentioned, maggots and flies in a lion carcass, in any decaying corpse or carcass. But, but he finds these bees. And so you look at this sign, and, and you have to be drawn. It's like when Moses saw the burning bush. How can you not want to get closer and see what's going on? There's something awesome happening here. There's something so out of the ordinary. There's something so anomalous and beautiful happening here. So Samson is drawn to this, this honey being cultivated by these bees in this lion carcass. And this is a huge theme in scripture. This is a big primary reason God gives us signs. To cultivate appetites and cravings in us for his kingdom. Right? God says, you seek first my kingdom. I want to cultivate a, a relentless appetite in you for, for who I am and how I work and how I bring my kingdom to bear in this world. And so Samson sees this, this sign, these energetic bees in, in their community making, making sweetness and, and honey in the midst of death and decay. Y'all, this is a sign. This is a sign of what God's doing all throughout Scripture. And it's especially a sign of what God's doing and how God works all throughout the book of Judges. Because the book of Judges is a dark book. It's a nightmarish book. This prevailing statement in the book of Judges where everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. And you see the wreckage of living that way. You see all of the pain and chaos and destruction and just bad stuff that comes with that paradigm and that approach to life. But the prevailing message permeating this book, like leaven working its way through dough, is that God is going to orchestrate redemption. In accordance with his grace, mysteriously, God's going to prevail, even in the midst of such a nightmarish, wretched book. And he's going to bring about life and sweetness. Like these bees are cultivating honey in the midst of this lion carcass. And so, again, Samson, he can't help but be drawn to this, but there's tension because Samson's not actually allowed to touch this corpse. I mean, you go back into the Levitical law and you can see that Jews, just in general as a community, weren't supposed to interact with, with dead lion carcasses. Um, but on top of that, Samson is a Nazarite. So, so it's doubly true for him that he's not supposed to approach this honey and partake of it. But there's this tension because how can you not be drawn to this? And that might be a paradox for you. That might be frustrating for you to hear. But that's what God's doing a lot. A lot in scripture and a lot in our, our everyday real lives. So let's take an engagement ring for, for an example. Uh, an engagement ring is a sign. So a man asks a woman, will you be my wife? And she says, yes, I want to be your wife. The, the two want to become one. So he gives her this sign of uh, an engagement ring. So that, that 
ring means they're fully married, right? Like all the privilege and benefits of two becoming one now are true for them. No, no. The Song of Songs says uh, what's true is that there's this overwhelming hunger for this two become one mysterious covenant, but don't arouse or awaken all of the particular benefits and privileges of that union just yet. You're engaged, you're betrothed, you should want all of the things that come with marriage, but you're not there yet. So, so already you've agreed to be married, but not yet can you fully engage and participate in all of the blessings of that covenant. You can see this in the Garden of Eden. Uh, God puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he surrounds them with beautiful, uh, tasty fruit trees. And, and number one, God's command to Adam and Eve is very liberal and lavish and abundant. He says, all these trees... They're, they're for you to eat and partake of. They're beautiful to behold. They're, they're wonderful to partake of. And you can have any of them except God says, I command you to, by faith, abstain from this one particular tree. There's this one tree called the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, it is beautiful. It's pleasing to the eyes. It's, it looks like it's, it's a wonderful fruit tree. And yet, uh, even if it doesn't make sense to you, even if, even if you really, really want to partake of it, by faith, because I said so, you're not allowed. How can you not be drawn to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's so pretty. It's so beautiful. It, it looks so delicious. And God says, but by faith, you, you have to resist that particular impulse. Uh, Mount, Mount Sinai, the Israelites in the wilderness. I mean, they're seeing such dramatic displays of God's majesty and his awesome glory and power. I mean, how can you not be drawn to God? I mean, shouldn't you want to have rich, intimate communion and fellowship with God? And yet, they, they live in this tension. They can't get close. They can't touch the mountain. Their livestock can't even touch the mountain. What about the ark? The ark, the symbol, the sign of God's presence, God with his people. God wants to dwell with his people intimately right there in their midst. But, but they can't touch that ark. They, they have to create a tabernacle and eventually a temple veil to block people from even seeing it. So it's a tension. It's, it's a paradox. And, and honestly, it, it carries all throughout Scripture. One of the most famous passages in Scripture, all about God commending his workmanship of faith, Hebrews 11. You know what it says multiple times of, of all these characters God is commending for living by faith? It says, um, these people who lived by faith, they didn't get the most full and final versions of what God had promised in this life. So what is God doing? If God's making these lavish promises and developing this hunger in us for his kingdom, but he's not going to give us our best life now, it means he has us in this stewarding of the mystery posture, right? He has us developing our craving, our appetite for the things of God, but he's saying, but, but we're not there yet. There's a heavenly home. There's a better country. There, there is a more full and final version of the promise that I have you waiting for. And we don't like to wait. We absolutely don't like to wait. I hate waiting, especially if I'm in my car. This thing has been designed with, with a gas pedal and wheels. And, and logically, um, I shouldn't have to wait. I grew up in Kansas. There's no traffic in Kansas. And then I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. And now, now, especially, there's a lot of traffic. And so I'm sitting in a car, in a thing that's designed to move, and I'm not moving. And I hate it. I hate it. 
And God says, you know, maybe that's a sign. You know, it has a speedometer and go over 100 miles an hour, you know, if you want. Um, but maybe you're supposed to live in attention. Maybe you're not supposed to just do whatever's right in your, uh, your eyes and have life on your terms and have all things on demand because that's what you prefer. Maybe, maybe you're supposed to steward this mystery. Maybe I'm drawing you to these things that are beautiful and good and true, not so that you can have the full uh, benefits and privileges of those things right now, but so that you will long for those things in their fulfillment in your heavenly home, this better country. God says, I, I want you to live by faith. I insist that you live by faith. And that's what he's telling Samson to do in the sign of the lion and the, the bees making honey in the lion carcass. And God, God's doing that here. So, so in a couple of minutes, we're going to come to this table. And clearly, at, at a minimum, here's what you have to see about this table. Even if you're not going to come up here and partake, even if you say, I don't really know if I want to live by faith. I've heard about Jesus. I'm not so sure I like everything I'm hearing from him. Uh, he, he seems to say things that don't align with my preferences or my value system. I'm glad you're here if you're, if you're kind of considering who Jesus is and what the, the kingship and lordship of Christ means for your life. So even if you're just going to remain seated, you have to be able to, at a minimum, just look at this, the, the, the bread and the wine, and see that, okay, obviously this is a sign. Uh, it's not a full-blown meal. This is not the full final version of the marriage supper of the lamb. Uh, if you do partake, I hate to disappoint you, you're going to get a little, little like thumb piece of bread and, and you're going to get a little, just a little bit of wine. It, it, it will not fill you up, okay? It's not the most full and final version of the marriage supper of the lamb of God. So it's a sign. But by faith, clearly God is provoking you. He's compelling you to relish what Christ has accomplished for you. And, and there have been developments. That veil was torn. When Jesus did this, part of what you're doing when you, when you partake of this meal is, is you are imagining and remembering that Jesus, after thousands of years uh, of, of the Hebrew community not being able to even look beyond that veil, in one definitive moment, once and for all, he, he ripped that veil in half. And boldly, we can come and approach God. We can take the body and blood of the Son of God, and we can, we can savor it, right? We can enter the joy of God to have us in his family intimately, and we can boldly approach because of his mercy and grace. And at the same time, you, you find that as you partake of this meal, God is cultivating more faith and he's developing this bigger hunger in you for a better environment, a, a heavenly home, a better country, a, a more full and final version of this thing that you can't help but want, right? This place called heaven where there's, there's no more sickness, there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death, no more decay, no more selfishness. You won't sin anymore. But guys, we're not, we're not home yet. We're not there yet. And so, as you examine yourself before coming and partaking this meal, let me specifically challenge you to ask yourself, do I want to participate in God's agenda to develop in me this hunger for heaven? Or do I, by contrast, want my best life now? Because if there's one thing that will quench 
the development of your hunger. It's, it's you getting all your best stuff now. Jesus says this in the Gospels. He says uh, there, there are people who have all these great gifts now, all these, these amazing things. They have the best vacations, the most bougie clothes, just like all the best stuff, right? They just, whatever their heart wants, they go after it, they get it. And he says, you've gained the world. It's tragic because you forfeit your soul. You've, you've not agreed with God's agenda to develop a hunger because you've been materialistic and consumeristic and so fixated on having all this good stuff now. Now, that's not to say you won't have some, some foretastes and good things and, you know, when blessings are inevitable, like, okay, God wants to give you a nice meal or, you know, something, your house gets a little better, you renovate something, that, that'll happen. But you know what I mean? To make, to make your obsession and your fixation getting all this good stuff now versus participating in God's agenda to develop this hunger in you for a better home, for a more full and final version of this intimacy with God that he promises to give us for all eternity. That's what you have to wrestle with. Honestly, before you come and partake of this meal, you have to ask yourself, what do I primarily, most emphatically want? Do I want to participate in this? The way of Jesus, the crucified servant king? Or do I want to fall in love with the world? And, and Samson is a picture of, of someone who's really in that tension and often failing. And it's a sign. God's saying, I, I want to show you a better way. And so if, if you're waking up to that and you're finding in yourself, because of the work of the Spirit, a, a, a cultivation of an appetite for this, you are wholeheartedly and joyfully invited to come. But if that's not you, uh, I need to warn you that you would be eating and drinking judgment on yourself. That's what the Bible says. And so you need to examine yourself. You need to weigh these options. And um, yeah, I, I hope and pray that for all of us, God will compel us um, to fall in line with his way, even though it's clearly not our way. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for showing us what you're like. All throughout scripture, it's clear that we would never ever have scripted for the Messiah, the Christ, to enter this world and behave the way you did and to say the things you said. But by your grace, we, we will see it. You will give us eyes to see it and you will give us hearts that embrace it and, uh, for it. For, slowly but surely, that's what we see you doing. Uh, we see you working through this, this process. Uh, I think of Peter. He, he clearly is out of alignment uh, with your agenda in his life so often, and yet you never gave up on him. You persisted. You, you always involved him and continuously enveloped him in this learning process where you were cultivating this appetite for the ways of a suffering servant king. Uh, so God, as, as we come to this table, we pray that you really would cultivate in us this, this voracious appetite uh, for Christ and him crucified. And we pray this in your name. Amen.